I'm Ashley C. Ford, and this is Into the Mix, a Ben and Jerry's podcast about joy and justice, produced with Vox Creative. Let's get into it. Today, we start with someone who is not an organizer or an activist, at least according to her. Patti Smith is many things, though. She's a musician, an artist, a writer, a cultural icon who came of age in New York City during the gritty 1970s. She's known as punk's poet laureate because of the way she weaves poetry and rock together. But really, her creative work isn't easily defined by one medium. And while she occupies a place in our culture as a true rock legend, she blends right in with most New Yorkers. She's tall, reaching towards six feet, but from her slightly slouched body language, you might not guess that she spent so much time on stage. Of course, as a musician and a poet, she has. And these days, some of those appearances are to call attention to the urgency of climate change. I'm interested in talking with her for many reasons, but it's the way she uses her creative talents to draw attention to this crisis that interests me here today, even if she won't call herself an activist. I'm essentially an artist. I'm really not an organizer. I'm not, um, I'm not even that, you know, politically attuned, I'm, I really, um, I move by common sense. I move by common sense and love and what is best for the human condition. Our earth is suffering, you know, and our species are suffering. And when I think as a child how I would walk through a meadow and there'd be hundreds and hundreds of butterflies and hummingbirds and, you know, and, and wildflowers and herbs everywhere, and, and you just felt life everywhere and I feel I'm starting to feel that life drained away and uh, and sensing a loss um, we all have to do better we all have to do whatever we can do the smallest gesture attending to our our environment and climate change is the number one issue for humanity There's a role for the artists in activist spaces. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, what's the most powerful thing an artist can keep in mind as they attempt to collaborate with activists in these spaces? I could never count myself as an activist, but I do know one one can sense that they have a certain amount of worth and to use that wisely. We can incite change. Artists don't change the world. The people change the world. United, we can do, you know, we really can do anything, but we have to believe that we can do anything united. And, um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I feel like I was getting, <laughs> going to start singing in a moment. I love sorry. that you went full artist for me. I love it. <laughs> that was inspirational. <laughs> None of this is new. This passion for the environment, this urgency for change, 
These days, Patty channels her activist energies on stage at an event called Pathway to Paris, which we will get to in a moment. But to be honest, Patty has been concerned about the climate since she was a girl. Well, I mean, my my activism was very, um, very small. But uh, when I grew up in the early 50s, they started to invent disposable items, disposable pens, paper towels, and um, disposable uh, razors. And all of this was very shocking to me. I thought it was very wasteful, and um, I refused to use them. I know that somebody like you, I would think of as an elder in a lot of these fights toward a more equitable world, a more just world. Do you see yourself the same way? Well, I am an elder. I mean, I'm 75. I've seen a lot. I always thought um, of myself, the way I was raised, we were really raised to be uh, humanists. My mother and father, you know, they tended and took care of anyone they could take care of. And um, I, I just tried to proceed through life, you know, with my parents as an example. And then, you know, looking at my children, I feel that, uh, you know, they magnify their, their mother and father and their understanding of our world. You have this wonderful daughter who's doing all these amazing things specifically in the climate activism space. How has she changed your relationship to activism over time? Oh, she absolutely has. Um, I, she's, she's inspired me and she continues to uh, teach me. You know, the, that song, Teach Your Parents Well, she has. Um, as a child, she was already concerned about our environment. And now she has, you know, um, uh, started Pathway to Paris. I've done so many concerts and, and uh, events with Pathway to Paris. But they're more than concerts. Pathway to Paris takes a creative approach to activism, one that very much marries art and culture with clear actions for the climate movement. It's named after the Paris Agreement and a goal to turn the International Treaty on Climate Change into a reality. They use the setting of concerts and festivals to activate people in that moment, like writing letters to their local politicians. Sometimes you, um, you'll you do something for a certain cause and through the night you wonder what the cause is. It seems to have vanished within a rock and roll concert. She doesn't do that. She's, um, I'm amazed. She, she brings people from all over the world, speakers, action, Bill McKibben. Um, Jesse really is counted Bill as, as, uh, as one of her mentors. But just see, seeing him at work, on the stage, getting people, motivating people in the middle of, of, a, of a concert to, to uh, do something, some type of action, and instill them and make them, uh, make them happy to do it or shame them into doing it. He is relentless. He's got so much uh, joyful energy, even though like us all, he's heartbroken over so many things. And he just 
gets up there and 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 gets people working and uh, you know rolls up his sleeves and I just I just think he's a wonderful person. Bill McKibben is an environmental activist and a journalist who has written extensively about climate change. He literally wrote the book on climate change. Actually, literally, he wrote it. I wrote the first book on climate change uh, 33 years ago now, I guess. Um, And I've been at work on it ever since in one way or another. made you title that first book, The End of Nature? Because I got to tell you, you sound like someone who has a lot of hope and, and faith in the future of humanity. But The End of Nature sounds kind of like, you know, the well, end of us. Yeah. Um, so the title is, <laughs> I mean, look, this is a truly serious crisis. It's the worst Mm -hmm. problem that humans have ever wandered into. But the title was really more about um, the end of our idea of the natural world as a place independent of human beings. Mm. Can you share a little bit about the spaces you grew up in? Did you spend a lot of time in nature as a kid? Did you grow up in a space where your community valued spending time in nature? I grew up in the suburbs. Um, but my family, my father in particular, was always a great uh, lover of the outdoors. Every vacation would head for the mountains and do some hiking and so on. So those things were always important to me. But it's not where I thought I would really end up. But this work around the climate intruded in profound ways. I, you know, I, I really began to realize that this was the most important story in the world and and that no one else was covering it. Um, and, but it uh, and so I kept writing books, Ashley, for some years and speaking and things. But at a certain point, it became clear to me that, that I'd kind of misanalyzed the problem. That is to say, uh, because I'm a writer, I thought that we were engaged in an argument and that the way to win an argument was to pile up facts and data and reason. And that's what we did. And we won the argument. I mean, there was no doubt about what was going on, but we were still losing the fight because the fight with the fossil fuel industry was not about facts and data and reason. The fight was about what fights are usually about, money and power. I know that I was probably first introduced to the idea of climate change, though I don't think it would have been called climate change or that anybody called it that when I was a kid. Um, In terms of just kids being taught about what we can and can't do to recycle or how to, you know, make sure that we're not using too much water when we shower to save the whales or something like that. And it wasn't until I got well into my college years that I discovered that climate change was something that was affecting us at a much greater scale and certainly beyond what would have been what I thought were my individual choices. I thought that, you know, it was really going to come down to whether or not I separated 
my plastics and my glasses in, yeah. you know, my, my trash that I put out. And the knowledge that we have about it has become so sophisticated. I mean, even just in the last 20 years. So when was it first presented it to you or when did you first encounter it as like, this is a real issue and why am I just now learning about it? So really the world learned about climate change in the late 1980s. Uh, and we can really almost pick the date in June of 1988 when James Hansen, uh, great, the most important climate scientist in the world, uh, testified before Congress. And it was a hot day in June of 1988. The country was in the midst of a very deep heat wave. Uh, the drought along the Mississippi was so bad that they barges were no longer able to travel the, the river. And Jim Hansen testified before Congress that we now had enough data to show that humans were heating the planet and that it was going to be a very serious problem. And, you know, it was within, within a year of that, I'd published The End of Nature. And that's when all of this came into focus. And at first, actually, it looked like people were going to try and do something about it. Uh, mm -hmm. But as we now know, within a year or so, the fossil fuel industry had rallied. They'd uh, gone and hired all the people who used to work for the tobacco industry. And they set about spending large sums of money to build this architecture of deceit and denial and disinformation that kept us locked for 30 years in this completely sterile debate about whether or not global warming was real. We now know that the oil companies knew it was real. They knew it was coming. But they didn't tell the rest of us. And instead, they told what turns out probably to be the most consequential lie in human history, because it's cost us the one thing we most desperately needed, which was time. We do have one piece of very good news. that the scientists and engineers have really done their job. And they've dropped the price of sun power and wind power and the batteries to store them about 90% in the last decade. So there's no longer really a technological or economic obstacle in the way. If we wanted to make rapid change, we could. It just is going to take a huge, huge effort, the kind of effort that in the past we've reserved for fighting wars. It's, you know, the weird thing is, as I listen to you speak, I don't feel hopelessness. What I actually feel is kind of a weird relief that somebody's just saying it all out <laughs> loud. Like, it actually feels oddly relieving to talk to someone and, and really not only hear um, the true gravity of it, but to also hear that like, yeah, there's still, there's things you can do. There's something you can do. There are things we can do and there are people trying to do it. Plenty of times in life we're taught that as individuals, we can barely make a dent in our biggest, most complex problems. But that undermines all of the incredible work being done some of which we've been featuring in this show, of course. 
But one of the biggest threats when it comes to climate change is actually inaction, keeping things the way they are, believing that one person can't make a difference. The most important thing an individual can do is be less of an individual, to Mm. join together with others in movements big enough to change the basic political and economic ground rules. Movement is key. Uh, And sometimes that movement looks like dancing. After the break, we hear more about Pathway to Paris and Patti Smith singing on stage. If nothing else, say what you will about baby boomers. I'll fight you. We had the best music that there ever was. To a um, a benefit concert where people had the the guts really to stop the music, talk about you know the things that were important, and then do it an action live on stage. At one event in Carnegie Hall, Jesse and Bill and the crowd wrote letters to the New York City Comptroller asking him to divest the city's pension fund from fossil fuels. And like the first day of school, they came prepared. There are pens and paper under the seat. And we collected those 3,000 letters. That is right during the event. I thought, oh my gosh, how are people going to respond to this? And people, you know, they, they joyfully get involved. Jesse and I went and mailed them, actually, at the big post office in uh, uh, center of Manhattan. And... Within a month, um, the comptroller of the city of New York had divested the city's $250 billion pension fund. The comptroller set a plan to fully divest the pension fund within five years, actually. Not a month. And they did it by 2021. They have made a difference. At each Pathway event, they always make sure to mix in action with the art and music. It's a part of their effectiveness. Pathway to Paris always charges me up because um, pretty much every on every occasion, I think, we've ended up uh, at the end with everybody on stage and Patti Smith leading everybody in her great anthem, People Have the Power. We wrote the song, People of the Power, that um, both uh, addressed the strength of the individual, but uh, the endless possibilities of change through a united people. And um, trying to think, it says, the people have the power to redeem the work of fools. Upon the meek, the grace is shower. It's decreed the people rule. And I believe everything we dream can come to pass through our union. We can turn the world around. We can turn the Earth's revolution. For the people have the power. That sounds to me like earned hope. You know what I mean? 
Like that doesn't sound to me like like empty gestures or or platitudes. That sounds so much like asking people to trust you. Well, trust themselves to trust trust their ability. You know, if each individual understood that, you know, the the power of good is in their hands and um and we all united with that purpose and we and we strolled there together none to laugh nor criticize i mean the the idea of the song is once again it's a humanist song there are more ways than one to activate people even Bill, who knows the cold, hard numbers about climate change, very much sees the value in an artist, a guitar, and an activist on stage. What a ride to get to watch and work with um, Pathways Paris over the years. Mm-hmm. Part of the problem is shifting the zeitgeist, uh, shifting people's sense of what's normal and natural and obvious. And that's what where culture is so important. During our interview, Jesse Paris Smith was right outside the studio. She had accompanied her mom there, and while we talked, Jesse was actually pacing, nose buried in her phone. This was the week that Russia invaded Ukraine, and she was working on videos her mom was making about the violence. As we talked about Pathways to Paris, Patty, in her humble way, kept deferring to her daughter. I feel like I should go and get Jesse's in the other room. You should be asking Jesse these questions. I can't she did this more than once. So finally, we went and invited Jesse into the room. Her. Ashley, here is Jesse. Hello. Wait, I want to see you. Oh, this is so fancy. Jesse and her Pathway to Paris co-founder, Rebecca Foon, have an enormous task ahead of them. And I was curious, with an issue as large and pressing as climate change, how does she measure the success for herself and for the movement? Um, I think that there's so many different kinds of success. Like, I obviously have such a great feeling when we do an initiative where 3,000 people will write a letter and it will cause a change to happen that's public and inspires other cities to make um, similar changes. Like those big, um, like tangible um, successes are really great. But I also feel that, you know, when I was younger, I thought I had to be like a climate scientist or have like a master's in whatever, (laughs) like something related to climate science <laughs> or be a politician but then i realized no i can just use the my own vocation to do what i can so that's what we try and to tell everyone um everybody has um an important role to play da, 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 da. But we're not done yet we couldn't leave without saying goodbye to Vermonter Bill McKibben You didn't think we'd forget to say goodbye to him, did you? So 
we're having this conversation for the Ben and Jerry's podcast, and that is because Ben and Jerry's obviously takes this very seriously. They are a very activist-minded company. Can you describe how you think of the organization Ben and Jerry's in relation to your climate work? Um, I'll tell you a story. The very first large-scale, though it wasn't all that large, climate demonstration in the U.S., may have been something that I organized in 2006 here in Vermont, where we marched across the state for five days, uh, sleeping in farm fields at night and whatever. We got to Burlington, our big city. There are about a thousand of us marching. Ben and Jerry's was there along on that first journey too, um, and helping feed people, helping people's keep people's spirits up. Um, and, 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 that's been a truly important role. Um, just as music is key, so is food in helping us figure out how we're going to build the world that we need. These are things we share. Um, and, and Ben and Jerry's always there, so we're always grateful. Bill McKibben, thank you so much for your time. I very much appreciate it. Into the Mix is a Ben and Jerry's podcast produced by Vox Creative and ABF Creative. This episode was written by Jessica Glazer. Production help from Ken Miles and Gary Swaby. The Vox Creative team includes executive producer Anu Subramanian, lead producer Jessica Glazer, production coordinator Veronica Guiti, and production manager Taylor Henry. The team also includes associate director of client success, Ryan Phelan. The team from ABF Creative includes head of production, Wanda Reynolds, executive producer, Anthony Frazier, and producer, Mike Biseglia. Sound design, mixing, and mastering by Chris Mann. Original music by Israel Tutson. Fact-checking by Girl Friday Productions. The Ben and Jerry's team includes Jay Tandon, Jay Curley, Emily D'Alessandro, and Chris Miller. I'm Ashley C. Ford. Thanks for listening. Listening.